Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. People v. John Guga, decided on June 11, 2019. Defi Ray, Chief Judge. The question presented in this appeal is whether the people violated their obligations under Brady v. Maryland by failing to disclose favorable impeachment material derived from the circumstances of a prosecution witness's pending burglary case and whether the people failed to correct false or misleading testimony provided by the witness on that subject at trial. We hold that, to the extent there was any suppression of impeachment material, there is no reasonable possibility that the verdict would have been different if the information at issue had been disclosed. In September 2005, defendant and his co-defendant, Antonio Russo, were jointly tried before dual juries for the murder of Mark Fisher. The prosecution proceeded on theories of both intentional and felony murder. Relevant to this appeal, the majority of the people's witnesses, who were defendant's friends, testified that defendant made a series of incriminating statements, including that defendant believed the victim was disrespecting his home, that he supplied co-defendant Russo with a gun for the purpose of robbing Fisher, that Russo intentionally shot and killed the victim, that defendant attempted to cover his role in the felony murder by asking his friends not to cooperate with the police, and that defendant arranged for the disposal of his gun after the crime. In addition to defendant's inculpatory statements, the evidence at trial established that, after a night out in Manhattan, Fisher and several other individuals accompanied defendant to his Brooklyn home, arriving at about 4 a.m. on October 12, 2003. Thereafter, Russo accompanied Fisher to a nearby ATM where Fisher withdrew $20. Shortly after the two men returned to defendant's house, the gathering broke up and Fisher went to sleep on defendant's couch. At 6.40 a.m., Fisher was shot and killed. He was shot five times with a .22 caliber weapon, the same caliber gun that defendant owned prior to the shooting. Fisher's body was found a few blocks from defendant's house, on a distinctive blanket that defendant's mother identified as one that came from her house. The individual who disposed of the gun for defendant testified at trial that, a day or two after the murder, defendant gave him a bag containing a black gun and, Pursuant to an arrangement made by defendant, another individual later took the bag in exchange for money. Phone records were also introduced at trial, showing that defendant and Russo placed an unusual volume of calls to each other in both the hours leading up to and the days following the murder. A different version of events was provided by a jailhouse informant, Ja, who testified that defendant made certain admissions to him while they were both incarcerated on Rikers Island including that defendant himself had participated in the robbery and beating of the victim. During Jaw's direct testimony, the prosecutor elicited that the witness met defendant while incarcerated on a burglary charge, that he had since pleaded guilty to third-degree burglary and that he was sentenced to an 18- to 24-month drug treatment program. Jaw testified that he had a 13-year history of drug abuse and quite a lengthy criminal history dating back to 1989. The people elicited from Jaw his 15 individual prior convictions, mostly for larcenous crimes. When asked how he was progressing in his current drug program, 
Ja responded that he was doing good. The ADA then asked Ja if he had relapsed during the drug program and he admitted to one relapse. Ja denied that he ever requested or received any promise or benefit in exchange for his trial testimony. On cross-examination, defense counsel elicited the following facts. Ja entered the drug treatment program on April 28, 2005, as part of a conditional sentence in exchange for his guilty plea on his burglary case and that his next scheduled court appearance was October 6, 2005, after his trial testimony. In fact, Ja's negotiated guilty plea provided that if he successfully completed the drug treatment program, his burglary case would be dismissed, but if he failed the program, he faced a three-and-a-half to seven-year prison term. Ja had committed several violations since entering the treatment program, including absconding from the program on the night of June 9, 2005. Earlier that same day, Ja had appeared in treatment court, where the judge reminded him that he faced state prison if he failed the drug program. On June 13, police officers associated with defendant's murder case returned Ja to the drug court on the warrant for absconding. Ja who testified that he began cooperating with the police in June 2005, was not remanded after that violation. Nor was he remanded after he tested positive for drugs on June 16, or after two additional violations, August 24 and September 2, one of which was a second relapse. As Jaw admitted, despite his violations of the treatment program conditions, the prosecutors did not ask for bail. When questioned whether he thought this favorable outcome was related to his discussions with the police on defendant's case, Jar rejected that suggestion. Defense counsel also elicited from Jaw that he was an admitted career criminal and, as Jaw further agreed, if counsel were to go through the facts of all of his prior convictions, we'd be here until probably Sunday morning. Counsel then cross-examined Jaw as to his extensive criminal record, impeaching the witness when he attempted to mitigate the serious nature of the underlying facts of certain convictions. On redirect, Jaw clarified that, after he absconded on June 9, he contacted his drug counselor who, along with the police, walked him over to court, where his counselor and the DA spoke with the judge. Although the trial prosecutor clarified that the judge presiding in the witness's drug court was not the judge presiding in defendant's murder case, she failed to identify herself as the DA who appeared in court with Jaw on the return on the warrant. The witness also stated that he believed his drug counselor got him another shot. During the charge conference, defense counsel requested a jury instruction that Jaw received consideration for his testimony as a matter of law. Counsel asserted that the witness violated the terms of his initial guilty plea on five different occasions, including leaving the drug program three times, and that the people's failure to request bail in Shaw's burglary case despite his criminal history and relapses was proof that something was happening here to protect Jaw. The court denied the request, but agreed to give a general credibility charge that permitted the jury to consider a witness's motive for testifying including any possible benefit or advantage the witness may have received. Thereafter, during his summation, defense counsel attacked Jaw's credibility on multiple grounds. Defense counsel pointed out the misleading nature of Jaw's direct testimony regarding the imposition of his sentence on the burglary case. 
he further asserted that Ja only contacted the police to provide false information on defendant's high-profile case because he had absconded from his drug treatment program in June 2005 and emphasized that the officers in defendant's murder case accompanied Ja to court on the return on the bench warrant. Counsel also maintained that Ja, who was still facing three and a half to seven years, was not a sentenced prisoner testifying out of the goodness of his heart. Finally, he argued that Jaw's testimony was an act of desperation by the people and it completely destroyed their case. Defendant was convicted of murder in the second degree on the theory of felony murder, robbery in the first degree and criminal possession of a weapon in the second degree. The count of intentional murder was not submitted to defendant's jury. The conviction was affirmed on direct appeal. In March 2015, Defendant brought this CPL 440.10 motion to vacate his conviction, alleging multiple claims of prosecutorial misconduct. Using Jaw as his primary source of sworn allegations, Defendant asserted that the people had violated their Brady obligation by failing to turn over evidence that there was an agreement to confer a benefit on Jaw in exchange for his testimony at Defendant's murder trial. In addition, Defendant asserted that the trial prosecutor personally intervened in Jaws' burglary case by procuring his release without bail during the June 13 drug court appearance, failed to correct Jaws' trial testimony to specify that she was the DA who participated on June 13, and failed to correct his characterization of his performance as good in the drug treatment program. The people who acknowledged the trial prosecutor's appearance at the June 13 proceeding in their motion papers, opposed the motion to vacate the judgment, but consented to a hearing on any disputed facts. The transcript of Jaw's June 13 court proceeding was in evidence at the hearing. It reflects that Jaw was represented by his attorney on the burglary case and that defendant's trial prosecutor appeared for the people. The prosecutor told the court that it was a voluntary return on a warrant and asked if we may approach the bench, whereupon, a discussion was held off the record. At the hearing, the prosecutor testified that she accompanied Ja to that court appearance because she could not let him leave her office on his own because there was an open warrant. She denied considering him a witness in defendant's case at that early juncture because she had yet to investigate his statement. The ADA explained that she asked to approach the bench for purposes of Jaw's safety because she did not want to announce in open court that Jaw came to speak with her about a homicide. She maintained that she told the judge that Jaw was giving purported information about a murder case and did not take any position about his bail-slash-remand status in the burglary case. She explained that her preference would be for an individual in Jaw's position to be remanded because it is easier to locate a witness if he is in custody. The evidence at the hearing also included a June 15, 2005 email from a high-ranking executive ADA in the district attorney's office to the director of Eclink indicating that the district attorney's office, the same agency prosecuting both Jaws' burglary case and defendant's murder case, was interested in Jaws' progress in the drug treatment program. In addition, Defendants' witnesses established that drug addicts participating in drug treatment court often fall into relapse and that it is very common for such individuals to be given multiple opportunities by the court to stay in the program rather than be remanded to prison. The ADA in charge of the Mental Health Court Bureau testified that the prosecutor, as an advocate, will often take a position as to whether a defendant is succeeding or failing in the program but, once a defendant has taken a conditional plea, his fate really lies in the hands of the judge.
the hearing evidence further revealed that, on September 19, 2005, three days prior to Jaw's testimony at defendant's trial, he was discharged from a treatment facility for bringing cigarettes into the facility and distributing them to other patients. At his court appearance on that date, Jaw explained I have a hard time with the cigarettes. I'm a big smoker. I'm supposed to be testifying. This week in a murder case, so I was smoking a lot. Ja was not remanded, and was given another opportunity to participate in an outpatient treatment program. Neither this specific violation nor the transcript of the September 19th proceeding was disclosed to defense counsel at trial. Notably, defendant's trial counsel testified at the hearing that he was unsure whether he would have used that information, observing that most people would consider bringing cigarettes to a facility to be something that's not so sinister. The October 2006 transcript of Jaw's sentencing proceeding on the burglary conviction was also admitted into evidence. Based on Jaw's ultimate failure to successfully complete his 18 to 24 month drug treatment program, he was sentenced to three and a half minus seven years in prison, the maximum term he originally faced. At that proceeding, approximately one year after defendant's conviction, where Jaw was represented by the same attorney who represented him at his June 13th drug court appearance, no reference was made to Jaw's cooperation at defendant's murder trial. In all, defendant presented five witnesses at the hearing, Jaw, the lead prosecutor at defendant's trial, the ADA in charge of the Mental Health Court Bureau, defendant's trial counsel and one of the detectives who worked on defendant's case. The only witness who testified to any type of arrangement or tacit agreement by which Jaw would receive a benefit for his testimony at defendant's trial was Jaw himself, who was soundly discredited. Indeed, Supreme Court found his testimony to be absolutely incredible, remarking that it was so patently incredible it bordered on being laughable and embarrassing. Given Jaw's prior, and recorded, Contrary statements to an investigator for the defense as well as his internally inconsistent hearing testimony, defendants 440 counsel stated that, if the court is so inclined, by all means, dismiss Jaw's hearing testimony outright and throw it in the garbage, as his testimony was unnecessary to sustain defendants' burden of proof. Supreme Court specifically credited the testimony of the remaining witnesses, including the people's sole witness, another Guka case detective. At the conclusion of the hearing, Supreme Court denied defendants CPL 440.10 motion, finding no evidence of any understanding or agreement between the prosecution and the witness. The court held that, even assuming Jaw received a benefit by being released instead of remanded by the court based on his drug treatment violations, the error was not material. For the same reason, the court held that there was no reasonable possibility that the failure to clarify that defendant's trial prosecutor was the space ADA who appeared with the witness in drug court affected the jury's verdict. The appellate division reversed and granted defendant's motion to vacate his conviction, but did so while deferring to Supreme Court's credibility determinations. The court held that the people had a duty to disclose certain Brady information, specifically, the circumstances of Jaw's initial contact with the police relating to defendant's case, the trial prosecutor's June 13th appearance, and the information she provided to the drug treatment court at that appearance. The court also held that the trial prosecutor was required to correct Jaw's trial testimony about his good progress in drug treatment and the extent of his contact with her and the police detectives. 
Although the court found no evidence of any express promise of a benefit to Jaw, it nonetheless concluded that, had the evidence at issue been disclosed, the jury could have found that there was a tacit understanding between Jaw and the prosecution that he would receive or hope to receive a benefit for his testimony. A judge of this court granted the people leave to and we now reverse. The people have an obligation under Brady to disclose evidence and information in their possession that is both material and favorable to the defense. The Brady rule is based on the requirement of due process, and its purpose is not to displace the adversary system as the primary means by which truth is uncovered, but to ensure that the accused receives a fair trial, quoting United States v. Bagley. The prosecutor's duty to disclose arises out of considerations of elemental fairness to the defendant and as a matter of professional responsibility. Negligent, as well as deliberate, non-disclosure may deny due process. Good faith, therefore, may not excuse even a negligent failure to disclose unrequested exculpatory evidence where that evidence is highly material to the defense. Impeachment material that may affect the credibility of a principal prosecution witness including promises of leniency given to the witness in exchange for favorable testimony against an accused, must be disclosed. The people's duty also extends to correcting mistakes or falsehoods by a witness whose testimony on the subject is inaccurate. Where a prosecutor elicits or fails to correct such inaccurate testimony, reversal and a new trial are necessary unless there is no reasonable possibility that the error contributed to the conviction. To make out a successful Brady claim, a defendant must show that, 1, the evidence is favorable to the defendant because it is either exculpatory or impeaching in nature, 2, the evidence was suppressed by the prosecution, and, 3, prejudice arose because the suppressed evidence was material. In New York, where a defendant made a specific discovery request for a document, and the information was not disclosed, we measure the third prong of the materiality of the suppressed Brady material by considering whether there is a reasonable possibility that disclosure of the evidence would have changed the result of the proceedings. In the absence of a specific request by defendant, materiality is established if there is a reasonable probability that the result would have been different if the evidence had been disclosed, meaning a probability sufficient to undermine the court's confidence in the outcome of the trial. Defendant asserts this Brady violation in the procedural context of a post-conviction CPL Article 440 motion. At the hearing of the motion to vacate the conviction, the defendant has the burden of proving by a preponderance of the evidence every fact essential to support the motion, quoting CPL 440.30. Supreme Court properly rejected defendant's claim. Defendant's own witnesses at the CPL 440.10 hearing proved there was no agreement with Jaw, tacit or otherwise. Their testimony was that Jaw never asked for anything and that he was not promised anything in return for his testimony. Nor does the evidence reveal any indication that Jaw ever expressed any hope or expectation that his cooperation would result in some favorable treatment. The testimony was that, when asked, Jaw specifically denied wanting any benefit for his testimony. There is no dispute that Jaw did not speak with law enforcement about defendant's case until after he had already brokered his agreement on his burglary case, pleaded guilty, and obtained a promise of a conditional sentence that left the possibility of a complete dismissal of his burglary conviction within his own control. The dismissal required one thing, that he successfully complete his 18-24-month drug treatment program.
the appellate division erred in its determination that the jury could have found a tacit understanding that the witness would receive or hope to receive a benefit for his testimony. That holding seems to have been based, in part, on an overly broad reading of some of our cases addressing tacit agreements. In Quickla, the people suppressed a letter to the parole board on behalf of the testifying accomplice wherein the prosecutor conveyed the accomplice's extreme cooperation at the defendant's first trial, a specific defense request was made for that material at the retrial. We stated that the suppression of the material was a Brady violation, as the jury could have found that, despite the witness's protestations to the contrary, there was indeed a tacit understanding between the witness and the prosecution, or at least so the witness hoped. Our holding was specifically predicated on the correspondence between the Office of the District Attorney and the Parole Board against the backdrop of the circumstances of the testifying witness's own criminal case. A witness's wholly subjective hope of favorable treatment, in the absence of any objective circumstances that reasonably substantiate the witness's expectation, cannot unilaterally form the basis of a tacit understanding, particularly where, as here, the only credible evidence in the record is that the witness was given no promises or assurances by, and communicated that he did not request or expect any favorable treatment from, the people. Rather, as we have held, the prosecutor's duty to disclose the existence of an agreement arises from the fact that the prosecutor and the witness have reached an understanding in which the witness's cooperation has been exchanged for some quid pro quo on the part of the prosecutor. That type of understanding, or the making of any assurances in this regard creating an expectation of some benefit, was plainly absent in this case. We do recognize, however, that even where there is neither an express nor a tacit agreement, the people have a broader responsibility to disclose favorable information tending to show that a witness had an incentive to testify falsely in order to curry favor with the prosecution on an open criminal case. Whether this information must be turned over is not dependent on whether the prosecutor believes it to be credible. Nor is the non-disclosure of material evidence excused by the good-faith belief of the prosecutor that the material was not relevant. Given the circumstances of the conditional sentence promise in the pending burglary case and Jaw's violations of his treatment program, it could be argued that Jaw may have perceived that his upcoming testimony at the murder trial was beneficial to his retention in the drug treatment program as he was repeatedly released by the court, without the people's objection, on his own recognizance despite those violations. There was undisclosed evidence that would have enabled defense counsel to deepen his argument that Jaw was testifying falsely in order to receive favorable treatment from the court with the people's acquiescence. Specifically, defendant argues the people should have disclosed emails from the executive ADA in charge of the drug treatment program to the director of the EK indicating the people's interest in what was happening with Jaw in the drug treatment program, Jaw's release after the September 19th cigarette violation and the trial prosecutor's appearance at the June 13th proceeding. We do not, however, automatically require a new trial whenever a combing of the prosecutor's files after the trial has disclosed evidence possibly useful to the defense but not likely to have changed the verdict. Assuming the people had an obligation to disclose this information, there is no reasonable possibility that it would have resulted in a different verdict. In Turner v. United States, the United States Supreme Court observed that, determining the materiality of these types of Brady claims is legally simple but factually complex. 
we must examine the trial record, evaluate the withheld evidence in the context of the record and determine in light of that examination whether there is a reasonable possibility that the result of the trial would have been different if the evidence had been disclosed. The court did not suggest that impeachment evidence is immaterial with respect to a witness who has already been impeached with other evidence, but held that neither the undisclosed impeachment evidence, which was largely cumulative of impeachment evidence petitioners already had and used at trial, nor the cumulative effect of the withheld evidence would have impacted the jury verdict. In determining that a Brady violation occurred, the appellate division failed to do the required materiality analysis as to the suppressed information. At the trial, defendants' counsel accessed Jaws' court file on his open burglary case, as well as Jaws' extensive criminal history. In his cross-examination of the witness, defense counsel emphasized Jaws' status as a career criminal and highlighted the differences between the witness's factual descriptions of his crimes and the official records of those convictions. Most importantly, counsel elicited facts enabling him to argue to the jury that Jaw, despite having heard defendants' jailhouse admissions months before, contacted the police working defendants' case after he absconded from the drug program on June 9. That defendant's case detective and a DA appeared with Jaw in drug court on June 13 for return on the warrant issued when Jaw absconded, and that Jaw, having violated the conditions of the program, was nonetheless released by the court following that appearance. Counsel made the jury aware that Jaw continued to be released despite additional violations of his drug treatment program conditions and that bail was never requested in his burglary case notwithstanding those violations. There is no dispute that defense counsel at trial knew that the prosecutor's office for Jaws' pending burglary case and defendant's murder case was the same entity and, accordingly, knowledge of the absence of a bail or remand request was chargeable to the trial prosecutor. Given his knowledge of the court history of Jaws' burglary case and the extensive impeachment material elicited at trial, Defense counsel was able to argue forcefully that Jaw was testifying falsely to curry favor from the court and the prosecutor in connection with his bending case. Contrary to the dissent's position, the undisclosed impeachment evidence at issue here, like that in Turner, was more of the same evidence that was available to the defense and used to impeach the witness at trial. The disclosed evidence provided ample basis for defense counsel to argue to the jury that Jaw had a bias in favor of the people as he hoped to receive a benefit in exchange for his testimony, and that the people's failure to request bail in his open burglary case despite his drug program violations was the benefit conferred. Nor can it be ignored that, as noted, the people presented strong evidence of defendant's guilt at trial, including defendant's self-incriminating statements to his friends, his efforts to dispose of the gun shortly after the murder and the physical evidence from his house, the blanket, recovered from the crime scene. In sum, given the above, there is no reasonable possibility that the failure to disclose that particular evidence would have affected the verdict. Relatedly, the trial prosecutor failed to correct Jaw's mischaracterization of his progress in drug treatment and failed to disclose her involvement at his June 13th appearance in drug court. The trial record reveals defense counsel knew of at least five violations and, in fact, did impeach Jaw as to his purported good progress. On the other hand, while the identity of the particular prosecutor does not change the fact that the district attorney's office is viewed as one entity for Brady disclosures, 
the ADA should have clarified the record by disclosing all the details of what had actually transpired at the June 13th appearance. Nonetheless, as the 440 record demonstrates, there was no deal between the people and the witness and the witness was not offered any promises or assurances in reference to his burglary case. Again, to say that there was ample impeachment evidence at trial against the witness on multiple levels is an understatement. In light of the above, there is no reasonable possibility that the knowledge that the trial prosecutor was the specific ADA who stood up for the people at the June 13th appearance and that job was still in a drug program despite additional program violations, leaving treatment and bringing cigarettes into a facility, would have changed the jury's verdict. Defendants' remaining Brady argument, that the people suppressed Jazzy Clink records, is without merit as are his Rosario and newly discovered evidence claims. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be reversed and the order of Supreme Court reinstated. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.